0: Psalm 77, to the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart, and my spirit makes diligent search. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he, in his anger, shut up his tender mercies, selah, and I said, "This is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the I will remember the years of the right hand of the most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. surely, I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders." You have declared your strength among the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you. They were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was in the sea, your path in the great waters, and your footsteps were not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Okay, we're getting into Leviticus now. This is a third book of uh, the Bible. We're in Leviticus chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4 today. Verse 1 Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Verse 4 Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. When someone decides to read the Bible, for whatever reason, they will normally, most people, start at Genesis and work quickly through that and the first half of Exodus. Then about chapter 25 of Exodus, the reading slows down. Eventually, it's treated as a chore rather than a pleasure. For many, this is the standard pattern. By the time they get to Leviticus, the book is closed, placed on a shelf, and never referred to again except in times of great distress or personal need. In distress, the Psalms are usually referred to, maybe even the Beatitudes are checked out. For times of personal need, it is common to open the Bible arbitrarily with the eyes closed and then point to any given portion with the right, yes, it must be the right index finger, and then, in hopes of something miraculous directing their way to riches and glory or the repair of a failed marriage or whatever, they open their eyes and feast on that one verse. If it is a verse or a passage which gives them hope, the book is closed with satisfied delight. Yay! I will have the years that the locust ate away at my possessions restored to me. If the verse is not a satisfying one, the process is repeated until something better is obtained. And then all is right with the world once again. The book is closed and peace is restored. It is certain that nobody, and I mean nobody, wants that one passage to be 2 Chronicles 21 verses 12 through 15. That's for sure. This is the effect of the book of Leviticus that it has on many people. It is viewed as strange, hard to comprehend, brutal or outdated, and completely irrelevant to the world in which we live today. It is to them as painful as having their blindly placed finger placed on that section of 2 Chronicles, words which, by the way, are our text verse of today. From 2 Chronicles 21, verses 12 through 15, thus says the Lord God of your father, David, Because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and have made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to play the harlot like the harlotry of the house of Ahab, and also have killed your brothers, those of your father's household, who were better than yourself, behold, the Lord will strike your people with a serious affliction, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you will become very sick with the disease of your intestines until your intestines come out by reason of the sickness day by day. Reading the book of Leviticus seems as painful to many as the fate of Jehoram, king of Judah. Be honest. How many of you have ever read the book of Leviticus in its entirety? Now, I know I'm talking to the superior word, and so most of you have here, but there are a lot of people online that maybe haven't. Okay? And for those of you who have, do you delight in it each time that you come to it? Do you say, oh boy, this is the cat's meow and the bee's knees? Or do you read it to get through it and to the next book? While in the Bible college that I attended, there was very little Bible involved. We had a few courses, but most of it was religious stuff, not Bible stuff. But there were a few mandatory Bible courses. One of them was Old Testament Survey. It was a survey of the entire Old Testament in a one-week module. If one expected great theological discoveries from the Old Testament, this was not going to happen. (laughs) However, the professor asked that during this course, each student would pick up the Old Testament, select a book, and do a full summary on it. We were to outline it explain its authorship and its dating, give the historical context, provide a summary of the book, and include the messianic expectations which could be derived from that book. Further, we were to include an application of that particular book to our own lives, As the choice of book was up to each of us, it was obvious that a very large and complicated book like Ruth or Jonah would be chosen. For the truly daring, the one-chapter book of Obadiah might be the courageous choice. As this is what was normally expected, my professor nearly had a heart attack when I told him I wanted to do the book of Leviticus. Surely, of all of the books of the Old Testament, this one had the least to offer especially concerning messianic expectations and contemporary applications. But he was more than excited to approve my choice and await my submission. I chose Leviticus because it is the heart of the law of Moses. And one cannot understand the greater work of Jesus Christ properly without understanding that work in relation to the law. Further, messianic expectations in Leviticus literally permeate the book. Like the detailed and marvelously pictorial hints of Christ in the construction of the sanctuary, each portion of Leviticus follows along that path as well. For those of you who survive through this book, you will have a much fuller understanding of the work of Jesus Christ and how Leviticus points to our desperate need for Him. I'm not going to lie to you that there are portions which will seem tedious and repetitive to you. However, we will get through them, and you will ultimately say, I will never look at this marvelous book the same way again. Leviticus. It is a marvel and a treasure of God's wisdom and glory revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, it's a glorious part of his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Amen. I have two thoughts for you today. The first is an introduction. The book of Leviticus is the third book of the Law of Moses and of the Holy Bible. Its Hebrew name is derived from the first word of the book, Vayikra, which literally means, and called. In Hebrew, the word consists of the letters Vav, Yud, Kof, Resh, and Aleph, which numerically equal 317. This is numerically the same as the Hebrew word Yabasha, or dry ground. We can think of Leviticus as the dry ground and the firm footing of the law of Moses. It is where the waters of chaos are separated and something substantial is brought forth for the people of Israel to conduct their daily lives. Beginning the book with the word and signifies that this is a continuation of what has already been presented. The book of Exodus closed out, but it really did not end. The thought process is simply continued with the opening of the book of Leviticus. In the Masoretic text of the Hebrew, in the last letter of the word Vaikra, which opens the book of Leviticus, the letter Aleph is written smaller than the rest of the letters. This is known as a minuscule and it is a very rare occurrence in the Old Testament. Majuscule, or large letters, and minuscule, or small letters, show up in seemingly arbitrary places and without any explanation at all. For this reason, they can only be guessed at concerning what they mean. The scholar Rosenmuller notes that ancient variations of the manuscripts leave off the aleph at the end, and so it would say, and the Lord appeared to Moses, instead of, and the Lord called out to Moses. The smaller aleph might then be inserted to indicate that it is one or the other, but nobody's really sure. The English name, which is used by almost all modern translations, comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint. There they call it Leviticon, which means relating to the Levites. Leviticus is the shortest book of the Pentateuch, or the five books of Moses, being comprised of only 27 chapters, and yet it is certainly the most overlooked of these five masterpieces. A careful study of the book will lead the reader directly to Jesus Christ again and again and again. As far as the book's authorship and dating, the author is undoubtedly Moses. Despite modern higher liberal criticism, there is no evidence to support anything other than mosaic authorship Internally, the book states, and the Lord called out to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses, or the Lord said to Moses many, many times. Although this is in the narrative format, and therefore statements like that could have been made by another author, there's no reason to disbelieve either the Jewish or Christian tradition which speak of Moses as the author. More to the point, though, the New Testament in general And the Lord Jesus Christ, in particular, ascribes Leviticus to Moses, as is evidenced in passages such as found in Mark chapter 1. Here's what it says in verses 41 through 44. Then the Lord moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer for yourself cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. In those words, Jesus cites a requirement specifically mentioned in the book of Leviticus chapter 14. Such New Testament references confirm without any doubt at all that Moses is the true author of this book. There is a dispute as to when this, along with all the other four books of the law, were written. However, the conservative and traditional dating can be figured based on when Solomon's temple was built. By tracing back from that day, as is indicated in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, which indicates 480 years from the Exodus... We can assert with relative confidence that it was penned approximately 1445 B.C. There was a 45-day journey to reach Mount Sinai, where the Israelites worked to construct the tabernacle. In Exodus 40, verse 2, it stated, On the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the Tent of Meeting. This would have been the beginning of the second year, and 345 days after the Exodus, and 300 days after their arrival at Mount Sinai. They would also make it the year 2,515 from the creation of the world. Later, the Israelites departed Sinai, as is indicated in Numbers chapter 10, verse 11, with these words, Now it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle of the testimony. As Leviticus was certainly recorded by Moses during this 50-day period, we can be confident of this time frame and dating. Whereas the book of Genesis spanned well over 2,000 years of human history, Exodus spanned less than 100 years, and now Leviticus spans less than two full months. Although mere speculation, it very well may even be that the entire book was compiled during the eight days of the ordination of Aaron and his sons. The importance of the information then is seen in the condensed time frame. Special attention was directed to the details of this book, ensuring that the precise instructions at a particular moment in redemptive history were carefully compiled for us. As far as a historical and redemptive context, the book was given to describe the proper method of approaching God, proper sacrifices when doing so, the priestly requirements which were intricately bound to the religious worship, and other areas of holy living. These were needed because of three particular things. First, the falling condition of man. Second, the growth of the population of the chosen race to a point where organized worship became essential. And three, the pagan conditions to which Israel had been exposed during their sojourn down in Egypt, thus necessitating a complete break from the incorrect worship conditions which had surely been infused into the Hebrew society while down there. Further... Many of the regulations look forward to the time when the Israelites would actually arrive in the promised land. As an example, instruction on the handling of mildew in permanent housing was issued in the book of Leviticus. Due to the lack of modern fungicides, which we take for granted, God instructed the people in this area as to what to do. However, these were issued before such housing was available while still in the wilderness. Therefore, they anticipated the conquest and the settling of the people in Canaan. In a sense, then, in the book of Leviticus, God was informing them that the battle is already won. The land is yours. The book deals with a multitude of matters which are all intricately connected to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Although he fulfilled every stated requirement in every Christological prefiguring of Leviticus, thus redeeming us from the curse of the law— We are reminded that we are to live holy lives before God. We can look back on the great prophetic fulfillments of Leviticus and have absolute surety that Jesus Christ was and is the Messiah, and therefore is God come in human flesh. Reading and understanding Leviticus also reminds us of the sincerity of God's promises and curses. By following them as are laid out in chapter 26 of Leviticus, and then observing the consequences of them as fulfilled in the Jewish people, which are recorded in Scripture, our faith is actually strengthened that all of the other promises in Scripture are also accurate and dependable. This book provides us with fundamental proofs of the surety of God's Old Testament and its fulfillment in Jesus Christ as indicated in the New Testament. Concerning the sacrifices, which are many and which seem brutal to the world in which we live today, the entire sacrificial system was necessary until the time that the true Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, would come and fulfill each and every one of them. What the world sees as brutal concerning mere animal sacrifices is really a foreshadowing of the most brutal of all sacrifices— one which every person on earth contributed to in their sins of the flesh. The book itself is categorical rather than chronological. Being compiled in this way, it is a book of spiritual statutes for the people of Israel as the Lord's congregation. The scholar Kyle states this, As the nation of Israel was separated from God, the Holy One, by the sin and unholiness of its nature— The only way in which God could render access to his gracious presence possible was by institutions and legal regulations, which served on the one hand to sharpen the consciousness of sin in the hearts of the people and thereby to awaken the desire for mercy and for reconciliation with the holy God. And on the other hand, furnished them with the means of expiating, that means taking away their sins, and sanctifying their walk before God according to the standard of His holy commandments. In accomplishing this, several object lessons involving the death of members of the congregation will be included for the people to read and to remember. As with many books of the Bible, there are countless sections and patterns which run through the book of Leviticus. But... As an overall theme, there are two major sections of this book. The first runs from chapter 1 to chapter 16, and these are essentially the laws for sacrifice and for purification. These will be highlighted by the laws for the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. It is a chapter which is so precisely given in pictures of the coming Christ that the only thing more exciting than reaching that chapter would be the rapture itself. The second major section will go from chapter 17 to chapter 27. These mostly look to the process of sanctification in the lives of the people. These will be highlighted in the instruction for the sabbatical years and the year of Jubilee. The two series then remarkably correspond one to another. The first book of Moses, Genesis, looked to the work of God the Father through Christ in creation and in directing that creation in the initial process of redemption. The second book of Moses, which is Exodus, then looked to the work of God the Son in Christ in the actual redemptive process, mirroring his own work countless times. This third book of Moses will highlight then the work of the Holy Spirit, applying the purification and the sanctification of Christ to the people of God. In all three books, though, it is Christ, the anticipated Son of God who is on prominent display— Nothing is more obvious, and in a thousand different ways, it will become evident to you. When the book of Leviticus is over, the person and the work of Jesus Christ will have been highlighted so many times that you will never look at this book in the same way again. If we were to sum up the book of Leviticus with one single thought, which carries us from Exodus and then into the continued life of Israel, it would be that the Lord sanctified Israel By his presence, that's the book of Exodus. And so the people need to sanctify themselves in his presence, the book of Leviticus. Our second thought today, the burnt offering. Verse 1, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, All translations essentially say the same thing here. And the Lord called to Moses. However, it is not how the Hebrew literally reads Rather, it says, Vayikra el Moshe bear Yehovah alav, and called unto Moses and spoke Yehovah unto him. To understand why this change is so important, we have to go back to the end of Exodus. In the last paragraph, it said these words Then the Lord covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord Filled the tabernacle. The beginning of Leviticus is being tied directly to this thought. As I said before, despite this being a new book, it is still only a continuation of the narrative which closed Exodus. Understanding that, we see that there is a time when the glory of the Lord retreated into the most holy place, and Moses was able to then enter there in order to speak with the Lord at the ark itself. This marks one of the three most important points in the Lord's dealings where Moses was specifically called by him. He was called to his commission in Exodus three verse four at the burning bush. He was then called twice in Exodus chapter 19 from the top of Sinai prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, and he is now called at the beginning of the instructions for the divine worship. The first looked in anticipation of the coming Christ. The second looked in anticipation to the work of Christ, and the third looks at the completion of the work of Christ and its application to the lives of his people. In this, the work of the Trinity is implicitly seen. Each member performs his part in the realization of the whole. Finally, as was the case with Exodus, the word should read tent of meeting, not tabernacle of meeting. Verse 2, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The instructions given to Moses here are to be relayed directly to the people of Israel and not merely to the priests who will receive the offerings, which will be laid out next. This then is a corporate instruction intended for all of the covenant people. This is similar to the call of the people to bring offerings for the construction of the sanctuary way back in Exodus 25 verse 2. The call went out to the entire congregation for free will offerings to be made. Something similar now occurs at the beginning of Leviticus, not for the construction, but for the use of the sanctuary. Verse 2 continues, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, there are many types of offerings which will be allowed, both in type and in purpose, and of which will be precisely named. Nothing else was to be offered except what the Lord specifically authorizes. Each will be detailed in a precise order as the book continues. The Hebrew reads, when a man brings an offering. However, the masculine speaks of both male and female, just as it traditionally has in English until the LGBTQ, L-M-N-O-P people came in. This is confirmed, for example, in the Nazarite vow of Numbers chapter 6, where both men and women could make such a vow. After the fulfillment of it, the offering was then presented by either the man or the woman. Further... The when of this verse implies if. Any person in the congregation could bring a voluntary offering, though they are mandated in the sense that they had to be brought in order to come near the Lord, they are voluntary in the sense that they accompanied the desire of the person to, in fact, come near to the Lord. The word for offering here is korban. It is used for the first of 82 times in the Old Testament, and almost all of them, almost every one of them are in Leviticus and numbers. It is mentioned only one time in Nehemiah and twice in Ezekiel, and that is it. It comes from the verb karav, which means to come near or to approach. The idea is that in order to approach near to the Lord, there must be an offering presented at that time. No person could draw near to a king or to a royal without presenting an offering. How much more the Lord, who was Israel's true king. Understanding this, we can already see a picture of the coming Christ. We cannot draw near to God without an offering, and yet we as believers are told that we can, in fact, draw near to God. This is through the work of Christ, which is our offering. This is spoken of by Jeremiah in the 30th chapter of his book. He says, Their nobles shall be from among them, and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near, and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Jeremiah states that one would come who would be allowed to draw near to the Lord. In the next chapter, it is revealed how this will be accomplished, which is through a new covenant. When Jesus came, he established that new covenant in his blood as is recorded in all three synoptic Gospels, and which is confirmed by Paul in his writings, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which we take the Lord's Supper every single Sunday, when speaking of specifically that Lord's Supper. This is followed up and explained in detail in the book of Hebrews. The instructions going directly to the people instead of the priests shows that the priest had no say in the offering, but rather he was to follow through with his part in the process, inspecting the offering for type, perfection, and conducting the associated work in transmitting the offering to the Lord. In Christ, we make our offering to God, which has been deemed as proper and perfect, and thus he is our korban. He is our offering by which we draw near to God. This is a voluntary offering in the sense that we must choose to use it, and yet it is mandatory in that if we choose to draw near to God, it must be through him and him alone. This is explicitly stated by the author of Hebrews, which explains the new covenant in Christ's blood with these words, For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment, meaning the law of Moses, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God, speaking of Christ in his new covenant. As long as we continue to think about how each detail points to Christ, the book of Leviticus will flow properly, it will be interesting, and it will reaffirm our own Christian walk, which is far superior to these rites and rituals, which are only a foreshadowing of his great work. Verse 2 continues, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. The first type of acceptable offerings are those of quadrupeds, or behemah. These are set off in contradistinction distinction to the birds, which will be mentioned starting in verse 14. The word behemah, or livestock, is then further defined by the terms habakar and hatson, or the herd and the flock. The herd speaks of cattle, and the flock speaks of sheep, or goats. The difference is found in the meanings of the words of each. The bakar, or cattle, indicates to seek or to inquire. When a person plows, they open up the ground, seeking out where to sow. The sown or flock, comes from an unused root which speaks of migrating, just as flocks are known to do. Of the quadrupeds, only these were considered acceptable as offerings to the Lord. Verse 3. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, the first type of offering is now specified, the olah, or burnt sacrifice. The word means to ascend. And so the idea of offering, ascending up in smoke, is what is conveyed here. The first time it was mentioned in the Bible was in Genesis 8, verse 20, after the flood of Noah. There it said this, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of his heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. The last time this is mentioned in the entire Bible is actually in the New Testament. There, in the Greek, it is known as holokaltoma. As you can hear, the word finds its origin in the Hebrew, olah. You've got holokaltoma, you've got olah. However, if you listen carefully, you can also hear where our word Holocaust comes from. Thus, one can see where the concept of our modern term is derived. But its meaning is applied differently based on the user. For those who did the burning of the Jews, they felt it was as if a sacrifice to God which would supposedly please him because they had done away with his enemies. For the Jews, it was as if a sacrifice to God had been made of their lives in order to please him. Either way, no such word should rightly be connected to what occurred at the hands of the Nazi from either viewpoint. There is but one truly acceptable offering which this burnt offering pictures. And that is detailed in the final use of the burnt offering, which is found in Hebrews chapter 10. Here's what it says. Therefore, when he came into the world, speaking of Jesus Christ, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings, that word there, and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God, O God. Previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, but which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, meaning the law of Moses, that he may establish the second, meaning the new covenant in Christ's blood. By that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This O law was completely burned on the altar With one exception of the skin, no part of it was eaten or kept by either the offerer or the priest. The skin was given to the priest and which he could use according to his wishes, apparently. This is seen in Leviticus chapter 7 with these words, and the priest who offers anyone's burnt offering, that priest shall have for himself the skin of the burnt offering which he has offered. They could use it for parchments, for writing things. They could use it to sell as uh, clothing for, uh, you know, whatever garments. But they were given the skin of this burnt offering and nothing else. Nothing else was, all of it went up to the Lord. Verse 3 continues, let him offer a male. Unlike the sin offerings and the peace offerings, the burnt offering was always to be a male. This was specified to more accurately picture Christ in this type of offering. Now, before I go on, why would the Lord allow them to take the skin and nothing else? Think about it because I'll give you the answer next week, okay? (laughs) There's one exceptional deviation from what I just told you, and that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 6. All of these offerings were males with one exception, okay? When the Ark of the Covenant, which had been captured by the Philistines, was returned to the Israelites, Those to whom it came took the cows that had pulled the cart on which it was carried, they were female cows, and offered them as a burnt offering. Let me read this to you. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there, so they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows, female cows, as a burnt offering to the Lord. That's the only exception you're going to find in Scripture. This was an exception based on circumstance, but not an acceptable custom according to the letter of the law. Verse 3 continues, without blemish. The word is tamim. It indicates that which is perfect, without spot, without blemish. To make an offering with a blemished animal would be an insult. It would be like drinking half a Coke, and then when a friend asks for a Coke, you give him the half that you hadn't finished, and then you go open up a cool, fresh, fizzy one for yourself. And this is exactly what the deceivers of Israel were known for doing. Here's what it says in Malachi 1. But cursed be the deceiver, who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. This burnt offering, which was to draw near to God with For that person was typical of Christ in this way as well. Here's what it says in 1 Peter concerning a perfect sacrifice. Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Verse 3 continues. He shall offer it of his own free will. The words here are not well translated. It should not say of his own free will. Rather, it should say that it may be accepted. The word is razon, and it can be translated either way. But many other passages in Exodus and in Leviticus explain the meaning which is to be used. Despite this, And although not a sin offering, it certainly implies that there is a fracture between God and man which necessitated coming to the Lord with a gift in order to be accepted. But unlike a sin offering, it is not intended to specifically take away sins so much as it is to obtain God's favor. In other words, it looks to the universal sinfulness of man, whereas the sin offering will look at the specific sins of man. In giving over this offering, it was picturing the surrendering of the life of the offerer wholly and completely to God, body and soul. Verse 3 continues at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. These words need to be considered properly. First, there was probably somebody outside of the sanctuary itself who inspected all of the animals even before they were brought in, okay? However, the offering itself, once accepted, would then be offered, as it says, at the door of the tent of meeting. If you were awake during the giving of the details of the sanctuary back in Exodus, and in the details which described its construction, you might remember that I noted that the door and the altar, the altar of burnt offering, are actually intricately connected. For example, in Exodus 40, verse 6, it said this, Then you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of meeting. At that time, I noted that the altar was said to be before the door of the tent of meeting, despite it having the laver between it and the actual tent. This placement of the altar of burnt offering answered to the placement of the altar of incense in the Ark of the Covenant. Just as those two were connected, so were the brazen altar and the door. We then learned that this pictured the work of Jesus Christ, where he said that he is the good shepherd. The altar was where the animals were offered, picturing Christ our offering. With that offering, he becomes our door, by which we have access to the Father. Therefore, presenting the offering at the door of the tent of meeting actually indicates it being offered at the altar, which then allows symbolic access through that door. The connection between the two is inseparable. In this offering, there is nothing secret or hidden. It is done openly and it is done publicly. And this is how Christ died. It was in a way that all could see and all could witness. And any and all who passed by would know that an offering had been made as they watched the smoke ascend into heaven. So it was with Christ whose death became known to all. In Luke 24, verse 18, it shows us that it was fully known throughout Jerusalem. In an ironic twist, the one whose life had been given was questioned if he knew anything about it. Here's what it says in Luke. Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And you have not known the things which happened there in these days? In other words, everybody knew. He died publicly and he died openly. Verse 4, Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering. The meaning of placing the hands on the head of the animal is debated hotly. But The next clause explains why it's done. There's no need to go any further except to explain what the words in the clause signify. There is a perfect animal, one without reason, which implies innocence, and thus it has been brought as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. The people who bring it do so for a reason. One does not mow a patch of sand, and one does not water plastic plants. The burnt offering is intended to do something, it's intended to appease the Lord. If the Lord needs to be appeased, it indicates that there is an offender who seeks that appeasement. The person who places his hands on the animal then is acknowledging that this is his sacrifice. He is the offender and it is his offering. He is asking that the offended will accept it in his place. The implication is that if it's not accepted, then his life is lost already and would remain lost. Further, it implied that this sacrifice would be sufficient to accomplish the mission. However, as these sacrifices were made often, it could only mean that they merely pictured a more perfect offering which lay ahead of them. Thus, it was an anticipatory offering until a final perfect one could be made in Jesus Christ. Verse 4 finishes with these words, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. The same word ratzah is used here again, which was incorrectly translated as freewill offering in verse 3. The clause says, And will be accepted to him to make atonement for him. The act of placing the hands on the head of the animal is what makes the transfer acceptable. And it is what then makes kafar, or atonement for the individual. This word, kafar, comes from a root which means to cover. When Noah covered the ark with bitumen, the word was used. Thus, it figuratively means to cover over or expiate sin. In providing atonement, the Lord is granting mercy, and thus reconciliation is realized. Although we're in the middle of a paragraph, this must be where we stop today. And so we will have to continue on with the rest of the chapter next week. The important thing to see so far is that the book of Leviticus begins with the need for an offering to satisfy God and to restore us to a place of peace with him. We've already seen at the end of the book of Exodus that the Lord sanctified Israel by his presence. And yet, even with that understanding, the people of Israel are being told now that their sanctification was positional in his relation to them, but not complete in their relation to him. This is all the more evident by the fact that there are priests who were consecrated to minister to the Lord on their behalf. And... It was more evident because the priest had to be consecrated, and they needed also to participate in their own sacrifices before they could sacrifice for the people. The more one looks into the law, into its requirements, and into what those requirements tell us, the more understanding there is that the law was and is completely incapable of perfecting anyone. Only a perfect person under the law could then transfer his perfection to the lawbreakers. And this is what Christ Jesus has done. We could simply cut and paste this thought to the end of every single sermon that we go through in the book of Leviticus. The law cannot perfect, but Christ can because he was and is perfect. It is not that the law was imperfect, but that those who are bound by it, but with one exception, are in fact imperfect. And so the law and the book of Leviticus in particular shows us this. The book begins with the notion of imperfection in man and perfection in God. Who will bring the two together and who will provide the needed imputation of righteousness? Thank God that the answer is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. This is why the doctrines of men, of Judaizers, of works-based Catholics and works-based Protestants, these doctrines are so, so poisonous. They rob people of the grace of God, which is found in Jesus Christ alone. When someone tells you that they don't eat pork, tell them, hey, that's great. But when someone tells you that you shouldn't eat pork because of the law, call him heretic Herman and have nothing more to do with him, okay? Jesus Christ embodies every single detail of this law, which stands opposed to us. It never made a single person perfect. And so why on earth? Why on God's green, beautiful earth would you want to voluntarily place yourself back under this system designed specifically for one man's success and all others' failure? We're only four verses in the Leviticus, and already we see that the rabid, the wicked, and heretical people of the world, what they refuse to see, we need Jesus. Thank God for Jesus who embodies this law which stood opposed to us thank God for Jesus who stands in its place and offers us grace. Thank God for Jesus for the shining smile upon God's face. All right, here we are. We're at the end of the sermon, and once again, we've come to the conclusion that there is a problem between God and man. The problem is sin. Israel was sanctified by God's glory, end of Exodus, and yet here, right at the beginning of Leviticus, they have to sacrifice for Something in order to approach God, and that something is a fracture because of a sinfulness in man. It's not specific sins. As I said, the sin offering, which we get to in a couple chapters, will deal with that. This deals with the sinful nature of man. It's saying, I need to come to you with something in my hand to be accepted by you. All of it is picturing Jesus Christ all of it. Without an acceptable offering before God, which these only picture because they weren't acceptable in and of themselves. The book of Hebrews tells us this. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Without something acceptable before God, we are infinitely separated from him. And the Bible has shown us that there is one acceptable offering. It is not Buddha It is not Krishna, it is not Mohammed, and there are not 72 virgins waiting for you in glory if you blow yourself up taking other human lives. There is one way to God and one way alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life, says Jesus. No man, no man comes to the Father but through me. All of this points to Jesus Christ and your desperate need for him. There's nothing you need to do in order to be saved except say, I believe. I believe he fulfilled these types and pictures. I believe that he died for my sins and that God raised him from the dead to prove it. That's what God would ask of you, oh man, is to give your life to God through Jesus Christ, accepting what he has done for you. Nothing else will work. And if you try to do something else, like reinsert the law, like I said, the heretic Herman here, all you're doing is you are offending God because he has already shown us what is acceptable to him. And it's not your works, which are insufficient. And so you're saying, well, what he did wasn't enough and I'll find my own path and I'll do my own works back to you. It's not going to happen. Simply receive Jesus Christ. I would pray that you would do that today. Our closing verse comes from Galatians chapter two, uh, three, it's verses two through four. This only I want to learn from you, Paul asks. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Anybody? Faith. Faith right? Are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, keep away from the law of Moses except to learn from it. That's why we're going through the law of Moses is we need to learn from it. It's pointing to something else. It's not pointing us to what we're going to do. It's pointing to what somebody else has done for us, okay? Next week is Leviticus 1. It's 5 through 17. We started the chapter, and to its completion, we will follow through. It's entitled, The Burnt Offering, Part 2, okay? The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a lifetime of sin is heaped up behind you, he can wash it away and purify you completely and holy. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Our poem today, very short one, is called, The Burnt Offering. Now the Lord called to Moses, yes, he was relaying, and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, Let these words ring. When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall your offering bring, of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, according to this word. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, this gesture he shall make, and it will be accepted on his behalf for him to make atonement for goodness sake. O Lord God, how exciting it is to start Leviticus the book, and to ponder on the treasure hidden there. As we continue, help our eyes to carefully look for Jesus in each word. Surely he is revealed there. And be pleased as we continue to live in accord with your word, holding fast to the grace which is found in Christ Jesus all glory we give to you through Jesus our Lord. How can we hold back when so much he has done for us? Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the many blessings of this life. We certainly pray for those prayers that were presented at the beginning of this service that need attention now. Specifically, I comes to mind those people in Lenora in uh, Australia that are facing such desperate times, but there are other things that we need to pray about as well. Please remember each one of them and respond according to your wisdom. And Lord, we certainly pray tomorrow for Linda's surgery, that she would be okay through it, and that she would be uh, up and about in no time at all, and uh, happily praising you for a uh, full restoration. And uh, we pray for Todd, our brother here, and uh, his future steps, and that you would uh, tend to him, care for him, and meet every need according to your wisdom for him. And Lord, we also pray for Sergio and Rhoda, who are departing us very shortly. We pray for a safe trip back to Fort Lauderdale. We pray for a really happy week where they get plenty of sleep and uh, just get some rest because uh, the move is coming and it's going to be tiring. And when they get to Israel, they're going to get no rest at all for the next many years with family around them. So I would ask that this would be a week of rest and a a quick turnaround back to their true home, which is Sarasota, Florida. And we'll pray for that uh, until it happens. And we love you and we praise you. We exalt you. We commit the Lord's table to you in honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.